Thank you, Pastor. It's a joy to be with you today. It's always great to be with a family of God when they're talking about becoming more missional. I love this, uh, I love this sanctuary. I walked in, and Johanna's already taken pictures because we go a lot of places, and they need a lot of help. <laughs> and so uh, when you can take PCV, PV, See, I'm not the domestic. Johanna's down here telling me. She's got the toolbox in our, hand, our house. Uh, PVC, is that right, Johanna? Pipe and make it look like that. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> so I was impressed. I didn't know what it was, but I was impressed. <laughs> uh, when I was pastor and they had work days, they'd say, uh, Johanna's invited, but we'd rather you stay at the house. <laughs> I didn't think that was a compliment, but that's kind of how it went. Uh, thank you pastors for allowing us to come and being your friend. I, I, I love being around your pastors because they just make you feel better about life. They're always encouraging, and Bill Newby is what I call the consummate Christian gentleman. And as, amen. He, he just, he, he, he really is. He's an encourager and uh, they are, they're very special to us and special to not only this church, but to the Assemblies of God. They serve in uh, leadership capacity in the Southern Missouri District, and we're, we're grateful for the opportunity to count them as our friends. And uh, I got some friends over here that I don't know all that well, but when I see that vest, I was U.S. Missions Director for a couple of years, and the RV volunteer, MAPS RV volunteers, were some of my special people. And how many times have I spoken at your conference? Too many times, <laughs> they're saying. I was just there. And uh, as an evangelist, I, uh, I uh, you know, evangelist, this is years ago. I'm talking about in the 70s and 80s. We always made record albums. Every evangelist had to sing or play something. And uh, the kids that are in this church, they've never seen a record album. If you showed them a record album, they'd go, ooh, what a big CD. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the other day, somebody... Uh, hit me on the email and said, uh, if you'll check on eBay, you'll find out that they're selling some of your old record albums on eBay. And I was feeling pretty good about that till I opened it up and looked at it. And it, sure enough, there were five of my old record albums being sold on eBay. And I was feeling pretty good about myself till I looked at the opening bid. 99 cents for all five. <laughs> Come on now, when you can take the sum total of a man's talent and put it on eBay for under a buck, ego's not my issue. I need encouragement today, so y'all going to have to help me. Well, I got to the convention the other day in October, and somebody had found another old record album of mine at a thrift shop in Arizona, Mesa, Arizona. Now, how it got there, God only knows. And they decided to put it in their auction, that they auction off all this stuff for a good cause. And I had been a little bit, you know, depressed, not really because I don't get depressed, about having five albums for 99 cents. But they will verify the other day that one of my old albums made in 1972, Pastor, sold for $500. I didn't get a penny, but <laughs> so I said, I got some more at the house if you'd like to. <laughs> I even have some eight tracks for sale. <laughs> There's probably somebody in this room has got an eight track player still, but uh, they're very, 
<laughs> she just raised a finger. She didn't want to raise her whole hand. God's moving around the world. I am more excited about what God is doing today than I've ever been. We have revivals going on in places that they said revival could never occur. We're just one part of the body of Christ called the Assemblies of God Preaching Truth. But God has blessed us, our tribe. And so I thank you for your investment. I thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you for your prayers, your faith promises, your investment in the projects and the missionaries and the career missionaries and the MAs and all of the ministries that we have going. We're almost now 100 years old. In fact, 2014, we'll be celebrating our century birthday. We started 1914 with 300 delegates. They made a declaration in those early days that they would start the greatest evangelism effort the world had ever known. In their hearts, they were declaring, we want to win the world to Christ. And that's pretty audacious when you're only 300 strong. But today, God has blessed us and we've grown from 300 worldwide now, 64 million adherents. And every day, God is adding to the church as should be saved. In fact, on the average, about every 10 seconds, somewhere in an Assemblies of God church or preaching point around the world, somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Every 39 minutes on the average around the world, a brand new Assemblies of God church is built somewhere on the planet every 39 minutes. We are now at about 335,000 churches around the world and 64 million adherents. Last February, we have a meeting every three years where delegates from around the world, the World Assemblies of God Conference, they come together. And these leaders declared that by 2020, we would have 100 million believers in the Assemblies of God and 500,000 churches. By faith, they are declaring that. I'm excited that people have a dream that there's more people that need to be saved and we can see them saved. But Satan is fighting every way he can. But he will not win because God says, I'm building a church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against that. Johanna and I have been traveling a lot recently. Uh, in June, we were in Brazil. Brazil is a, a phenomenal miracle. There are 18 to 20 million Assemblies of God people in Brazil. They're six times the size of the USA church. Their leader, their general superintendent, is uh, about this tall. He's a little guy. He's 77 years old. And don't let his age fool you because his wife is just as, as energetic as he is. I call her Granny Clampets with the Holy Ghost. <laughs> she is really wired up. They just are celebrating this year their 100th anniversary as a church in Brazil. And they declare that on 
One day, they wanted to baptize in water 100,000 new believers to commemorate their 100th birthday. And Johanna and I were privileged to be at his church, the mother church in Sao Paulo, that has 2,100 daughter churches. And that day, we baptized 6,158 people in one day in three and a half hours at that service. Can you say praise the Lord for that? That's amazing. I don't think they made their goal of 100,000, and I hate to tell you that, but when they called me recently and gave me the latest update, they had counted and calculated 81,000 people baptized in water, declaring their new faith in one day. Can you say praise the Lord for that? That is an amazing accomplishment. Three weeks ago, I was in Italy for a youth conference, and I was overwhelmed with what God is doing in Italy. It's been a place that's been pretty difficult, very conservative. We had 4,500 in this permanent tent down in a little town about 70 miles out of Rome. And one night, I preached on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, gave an invitation, and over 1,000 young people came forward to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. God is moving by His Spirit. Last week, in fact, Wednesday night, Johanna and I just got home from Holland. And this was a very special trip for us. It was very meaningful and very emotional. Johanna was born in Holland. Her father, Dutch young man at 17 years old, had lost his dad during World War II. He'd been taken into a slave labor camp and he was killed there. Her father, named Hank, Hank Reifkogel, was sitting with his mother and his sister having Sunday lunch in a houseboat, which was their home, docked on the Rhine River, when during a, an operation called Operation Market Garden during World War II, the Allies had supposed that in this village there was a stronghold of Nazis. And they bombed this village who had declared themselves to be neutral because they were thinking that there was a group that they were trying to defeat. And there were no Nazis there. And when at 17 years old, Hank, her father, of course, before he was married, he was just a teenager, came outside to look at the planes flying over and saw the insignia of their allies. He was waving at them, not knowing if they could see him back or not, and mistakenly, horrifically, they dropped a load of bombs on that neutral village. And when the explosion stopped, her father, 17 years old, was the only survivor. The house that he had been living in, which was a houseboat, had taken a direct hit. And the only remains of his family he could find. He never found any evidence that his sister had ever been alive. I think there was a friend of hers having lunch with him, and they, he never found any evidence she'd ever been alive. The only remains of his mother he could find in the Rhine was a little piece of scalp floating with some hair attached and her Bible. And he walked the streets of that little village... And as incomprehensible as it may seem to you and me today, 
at 17 years old with the only remains of his family that he could find clutched in two fists. He was the only survivor. Everybody else had died. He'd already lost his father. Now he'd lost his mother, lost his friends, lost his sister. And at that moment, he bought into Satan's lie. If you've ever suffered loss, if you've ever had unexplainable, incomprehensible pain, if you've ever had a situation that just didn't make sense, you've probably been tempted with this lie. It goes something like this. If God really loved you, why would he let that happen to you? If God is a God that loves people, why does cancer exist? Why is there war? Agnostics and atheists and unbelievers worldwide consistently question God with that one premise. And Satan continues to try to build a bridge between us and Father God to make us resent the very force and power that can solve our problems and our hurts. He clenched his fist toward the heavens, and he cursed God that day. And he said, I never want to pray to you. I never want to feel your presence. I don't want to serve you because of what you've done to our family. But aren't you glad when you're not looking for God, God's still looking for you? <laughs> He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, to forgiveness. Well, I can't tell the whole story. It takes too long. But ultimately, he became a member of the Royal Dutch army and he went to Indonesia. There was a revolution. The Dutch had colonized Indonesia. There was war there. And while he was there, he met a little Chinese girl, Chinese descent, who was born and raised in Indonesia. They fell in love. She was raised in a Buddhist home, not only devout Buddhist, but her father was heavily involved in the occult and mysticism. She was disowned by her parents for marrying a European soldier. Thirty days after their wedding, he was deported back to Holland, and she left her family, her friends, her country, everything familiar to her, and she went with her new husband. Literally, demon spirits trailed her all the way back to her new place in Holland, her new home, one that she was not acquainted with. She was fearful. He was bitter and angry. Even though their firstborn, Johanna, sitting here on the front row, the secondborn, one year later, Hank, the thirdborn, one year later, Alphonse, these children being born did not solidify their family relationship. Their marriage was fragile. Jan lived in constant fear, thinking something was going to defeat her, kill her. She had all of these demonic attacks. And one night, she walked into a big auditorium in Amsterdam. She'd been invited by some friends. They said, you're emotionally depleted. You need, 
you need a break. She put the kids with a neighbor, and she got on a bus, didn't know where she was going, never been to a gospel meeting in her life. But when she walked into this, she thought she was going on a holiday. She walked into this gospel meeting, and for the first time in her life, she heard a message preached from a Bible by an evangelist named Billy Graham. And when he gave the invitation for people to give their life to Jesus Christ, Jan walked down that aisle, a Chinese Buddhist. She walked back up that aisle, a Chinese believer, changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That was Thursday night. On Sunday, they decided to go to church. They found a church. They were going to the Dutch Reform because that's how he had been raised. But he said, he was, they said, we're running late. We don't want to be an obstacle. Don't want people looking at us. So they were walking along window shopping, and they came up on a little, like a storefront church. And the Holy Spirit led them inside. And that's where Hank got saved, her, her dad. It's where Johanna got saved. Her brothers got saved. And all of them were baptized in the Holy Spirit. When Johanna was 10 years old, they immigrated to western Kansas, Garden City. And they started attending a little Assemblies of God church there. And I went there in 1975 as a single evangelist and had a great meeting. <laughs> Don't know what kind of revival it was, <laughs> but that's where I met Johanna. And we've been married 34 years. Last week, last week, we took Jan... Johanna and her brother Alphonse back to Arnhem. Jan had not been back to that church in 50 years. None of them had been back to that church in 50 years. And we walked into that little church in Arnhem, Holland, last Sunday morning. And when we walked in, on the bulletin board was a picture of an early congregation and we looked in that picture, and Johanna's mom and dad were in that picture. Johanna's dad is in heaven today, but Johanna's mom was with us. And I had her come to the front, and she spoke to them, and she met friends that she had not seen in 50 years. We reintroduced her to her sister-in-law, who was married to her Johanna's father's brother. She had not seen that family in 50 years. All of that just happened last week. When I'm talking about 18 million and 100 million and 335,000 churches and 500, it sounds so big. But really, ladies and gentlemen, missions is about reaching one person. One person. How are we going to win them? One at a time. And if we're going to see victory, if we're going to see this world touched, we just a few days ago eclipsed 7 billion people in population with still thousands of people groups that have never heard the name of Jesus, not even one time. If we're going to reach them, everybody is going to have to do their part. When I told Billy Graham in 1995, this story didn't have the ending to it, but I had the salvation part and Johanna's mother being saved and her father getting saved. And 
He asked me, when did this occur? And I gave him a date in the early 50s. He called Cliff Bearers over and he said, listen to what Alton is saying. He began to put some things together. He said in the early 50s, we did overseas crusades, but we never did one-night rallies because it was too expensive to bring the whole team into a city for one night. We only did week-long crusades. We were in Germany for a week-long crusade, and we were going to England for a crusade, and the people in the Netherlands were so persistent, they wouldn't take no for an answer. We told them our policy. We told them we couldn't afford it. We told them we couldn't do it, but they wouldn't give up, and they were so persistent, we dropped into Amsterdam for one night, and that's the night Johanna's mother got saved. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he smiled real big, and he said, just think. We weren't even supposed to be there. Then he winked and he said, but you don't believe that, do you? That's the grace of God. That's the providence of God. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. We didn't deserve grace, but we received grace. Today, Johanna is serving with me in ministry. Her sister Miriam is on staff in an Assemblies of God church in California. Her brother, Hank, leads the Royal Ranger ministry in Garden City and serves on the board of the church there at the Assemblies of God Church in Garden City. Her brother, Sam, pastors a great church in Grand Rapids, First Assembly, and God is doing great things through his life and ministry. Why? You say, well, if Billy Graham hadn't gone, somebody else would have gone. Somebody else would have told her the story. Somebody else would have witnessed to her. God would have arranged another supernatural. I don't know that. I trust that that would have happened. But I'm glad that Billy Graham, nationally, internationally known evangelist, did his part. Somebody helped send him. Somebody went with him. And when he preached from this Bible or one like it, it touched the heart of one sinner that's impacted all of our lives. Missions is pretty important to us because we don't see it as nameless masses. We know the value of one person because we live it every day. Every day. And last week, it all came crashing down one more time. It was an emotional, I'm still emotional today. Because what if it had not happened that way? What if one person in the link had said, I don't want to participate? What if one person had said, the cost is too high? What if one person had said, no? And the cost is high. Pastor Saitu from the Joss District in Nigeria, member of our presbytery there, and a prolific church planter, had been warned time and time again from these radicals that held this area in their clutch of antichrist spirit. Radical Islam is a very dangerous activity. 
Not all Muslims are radical. There are many moderate Muslims who are very wonderful people. But there is a radicalized group that they claim number about 10% of the total population, which would be about 130 million worldwide. And they have dedicated themselves to your destruction. They dragged Saitu, Pastor Saitu's daughter out of class one day and beat her and raped her in front of the whole class and said, this is because your dad preaches and plants churches. She almost died. I don't know how I would have handled that. Pastor Saitu said, I can't stop preaching and I can't stop planting churches. I love my family. Nine children, wife. During a riot about 24 months ago in their area, Pastor Saitu was trying to help one of his friends. They captured him and cut off his feet and cut off his hands and gouged out his eyes and burned him to death. And his only crime was he preached Jesus. He lifted up the Savior. You're talking about doing your part when it means your life. I don't know. I don't know if I could do that or not. I think I could. I think I would. But I'm not sure. You say, well, Alton, you talked about Billy Graham doing his part, and you talk about Satu doing his part. Well, I'm not Billy Graham, and I don't live in the Joss district of Nigeria, and I... I don't know what God's going to ask of me, but I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm qualified. I don't know if I have the courage. I don't know if I'm brave enough. I don't know if I have enough money to do. I don't know if I could do my part. If you struggle with that a little bit, even if you think the price is too high that maybe you wouldn't even get involved at all, I have a, a, a biblical story that I want to share with you before I close today. If you turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. This story is so familiar. As soon as I say verse 1, your mind, if you have read the Bible, have ever been to an Easter pageant, have ever participated in a play in a church about the passion of Christ, you know about the triumphal entry. Jesus is going to be presented into Jerusalem. It's just days before he's going to give his life. And he comes into this city during Passover season, riding on the back of a donkey, a little colt. Every church has done it. Now, the big churches who have a lot of money have real donkeys. <laughs> if you're from Sour Lake, Texas, like us, we never had 60 on Easter when we came in, it was a stick horse. <laughs> but the story was always about Jesus because he was being presented as Jesus the King. But I don't want to talk about, as important as that is, I don't want to talk just about the focus on Jesus. For the next few minutes, I want you to look at the role of the donkey. I, I, look, at the, look, look at the passage. 
Verse 2, go into the village. Jesus brought two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter into it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one's ever set. That's pretty important. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the coat? And they told them what Jesus had said. They let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus, and then they threw their cloaks or their coats on it, and he sat on it, talking about the colt now, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields, and Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Go fetch that colt, Jesus said. And if anybody asks you, Why are you doing this? You say, I need him. That fascinates me. Why would the creator of the universe, the one who has supernatural capacity and supernatural ability, I mean, someone who can open blinded eyes, open deaf ears, cause the lame to walk, someone who could take two sardines and five biscuits and feed 5,000, that's pretty powerful, Break a fish's head off and it grows a tail. Break a tail off and it grows a head. Break a head off and it, that's pretty powerful. Walk on water, try that sometime. <laughs> Raise the dead to life, that's very supernatural. He has all of this capacity, all of this supernatural ability, all of this power, and he says, I need a little donkey. Go figure. Not only that, but an untrained donkey one that's never been ridden. He's going to be a part of this redemptive plan. What place could he have in the redemptive process? And for what purpose? But if everybody's going to do their part, Jesus certainly is going to do his part, and it's the major part. But this little donkey's got a part too. Now, he was pretty important, in fact, more important than you might think just upon casual observance. But if you go back to Zechariah 9 and 9, you'll find out that 500 years before this little donkey was actually present at that crossroads, he was prophesied about that he was going to be a part of this redemptive plan. So he was in the plan. He was important. Prophetically, he had already been predicted. Why was he needed? Why was he needed? Well, back in the day this passage was written, if a king or a ruler went from place to place, they usually came to conquer. Jesus wanted to demonstrate. I see, 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 the, the people thought that he was coming to overthrow the, the Roman government and that he would set up a new kingdom, and he would rule the nations. 
But Jesus, the first time he came, he was trying to demonstrate to them he's not coming to rule the nations. He's coming to rule their nature. So he's not the king of kings from a military standpoint. He's the king of kings, the prince of peace. Now, he's coming again. For that, we're very positive, and you look in the book of Revelation, and the next time he comes, it won't be on a donkey. It'll be on a white horse, and he'll be declaring that he's going to defeat the armies of the Satan, and he's going to be king forever. Hallelujah. So it's all there if you understand what's happening. So when they came on a donkey, that symbolized they were coming in peace. I think there's another reason he needed the donkey. This one's a little more pragmatic. The other one has a whole lot of nuance to it from a prophetic perspective and from a theological perspective and from all these. But the second reason he needed the donkey was pretty pragmatic. He just needed to be seen. (laughs) So he needed to be elevated. If they needed to see Jesus 2,000 years ago, and this was during Passover time, so there's a whole group of people there, and there were people all around. If they needed, if he needed elevation to be seen 2,000 years ago, he also needs to be seen today. (laughs) Think about it. What, what, what does he say in John's gospel? If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. What is our responsibility? We don't save anybody. We just lift him up. How do we lift him up with our praise? How do we lift him up with our worship? How do we lift him up with our prayers? How do we lift him up? By linking arms with missionaries around the world that are taking the gospel to places we can never get to. The Bible says that no man had ever set on him. That means he's untrained. He's unbroken. (laughs) I don't know a lot about donkeys, but everything I've ever known, seen, or read about them, they're not known for their spirit of cooperation. (laughs) What if he'd have had a typical donkey day? (laughs) I'm not going to be a part of this parade. I don't want anybody waving these palm branches in my face. I don't want some stranger sitting on my back, and then they're going to put these cloaks and garments and stuff on my back. It's going to ruin my identity. They're not going to know who I am. Plus, I talked to a horse whisperer some time ago. I was preaching at a, a church that's one of these cowboy churches, and she said the most frightened that a young animal ever would be that you're getting ready to train a break is the first time you put that saddle blanket on their back. She said, I've seen little colts just stand there and tremble not because a lion was close, not because they had been beaten, just because somebody had put a saddle blanket on their back. And he's got to submit to carrying the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's got to cooperate with this redemptive process. This is pretty big. only reason he was alive if he was a firstborn donkey is because a lamb had been slain in his place. Go to Exodus 15. The firstborn had to have been redeemed or have his neck broken. Come on, ladies and gentlemen. Do you understand that this little donkey had a very important part in the redemptive process, and he had to submit to carrying a king 
if he got covered up by all of these garments, this wasn't about him. This is about Jesus. It's not just about us. It's about those who have never heard. They weren't singing Hosanna to the donkey. They were singing Hosanna to the king. This wasn't a parade for the donkey. <laughs> this world needs Jesus like never before. I could stand and tell you of all the blessings which I've done a little bit of, all the victories that I've done a little bit of, but I could also stand and tell you for the next hours the challenges. I brought a video today just to show you one challenge. It would be unkind of me and untrue to categorize all Muslims as radical. But I can't be in denial either that there is a conflict coming between Isaac and Ishmael. And the reason that people can't understand it politically is they think this is about politics or about oil. This is a, about God versus the devil. I'm not characterizing people. I'm telling you there's a force in this world that wants to use every means possible to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a video captured and taken by BBC and we can't rebroadcast this. Don't tweet this. I don't think you could get the video down. They won't put, post it on the internet. Don't. But I want you to see because this is pretty chilling. The answer to this dilemma is not more war. The answer to this dilemma is a worldwide revival. It's not fighting. Money, political power, or oil? The answer is changed hearts. And we must touch the children of the world. We think so temporally. They think almost eternally. Can I tell you? The urgency has never been greater. We're standing at a place right now where we have the, we've got the committed career missionaries ready to go into these hard places. We've got the, the support teams. I call it the difference between pioneer missions and facilitating missions. We've got the people ready to teach the Bible schools. We've got people ready to teach, train. Right now, as we're sitting here, think about this. Cuba has just been opened up to a Bible college through Global University where we have hundreds of students already studying in a place that is still under the impact of communism. This last week, Thursday night of this week in New York City, my dear friend, who is the regional director of China, challenged a group of people. We now have a way, Pastor, to start a China Bible college through the Internet. 
with Global University. And I just got the email Friday morning that to date, not just Thursday, but up until Thursday, we've raised $4 million to have a China Bible college in a place that will not allow the freedom of the gospel the way that we think we would enjoy it here in the United States. Friends, this is monumental. They have a, they, my friend Ron Maddox is believing for 50,000 students right out of the box. Can you believe that? It won't start that big, but it'll go viral pretty quickly. Listen, we are standing on the edge of the greatest revival that this world has ever known. I really believe, this is not just rhetoric. I really believe that. But we have to step up to the plate and put the resources in the hands. I'm part of the Bible Alliance. I serve as its president. We have a Pentecostal study Bible in 37, now 38 languages of the world, and we're working on 27 more languages right now, where people who've never gone to Bible school, people who've never been able to study, have a Pentecostal commentary and in their language. We put three million of these in the house churches in China, and now look at what's happening. The fruit is coming back. We just completed a children's version in English, a children's version of a Pentecostal study Bible. And let me tell you something. The worldwide church, the worldwide revival is a Pentecostal revival because they cannot stand against the powers of darkness without the power of the Spirit. We've got to reach the children. We've got to touch the children. We've got to reach them around the world. I love to receive offerings for missions. When I was a pastor, it was kind of a, they laughed at me a lot because they said, don't even go fishing with Pastor Garrison because he will take an offering before he'll let you come back to shore. <laughs> They even said of me, I don't remember this, I don't think it happened, but they declared that I threatened to lock the doors in one service until we got the money we needed, and I don't remember that, but, <laughs> but I do enjoy receiving offerings, I have to tell you, I'm sorry. One night, raising money for these Pentecostal study Bibles, we had 500-plus leaders in the room, and we got $8 million worth of commitments in one night. That's a pretty good offering, amen? Somebody says, is that the greatest offering you ever part of? I said, nah, it's the biggest, but I don't think it's the greatest. The greatest was in a little town in northern Arkansas on a Sunday night, very cold, less than 100 people in the room. And I was challenging people to buy these Pentecostal study Bibles. On the fourth row was a six-year-old girl sitting by her grandmother. Her grandmother was the pastor's wife. Lauren was the pastor's granddaughter. The pastor's daughter, Laura Lee, raised in church, raised in Sunday school, raised in youth camp had become a meth addict, had lost her dignity, lost her husband, lost her job, 
and a court had taken Lauren and her little sister away because her being an unfit mother placed them with her grandparents, the pastors of that church. I knew a little bit of that story. I didn't know everything. I knew she was facing 23 felony counts, and she was facing three years in prison. Eddie had told me that. That's the pastor. Little Lauren, six years old, sitting there listening to this about these Bibles, she tapped Patsy on the shoulder and she said, Grandma, would you go over to the parsonage and get my penny bank? I've been saving money to buy Mommy a house, but I want to give that money to this preacher to buy those Bibles. Now, Lauren at six, she didn't understand that what she could put in a penny bank wasn't going to help buy a house. It really wasn't a house she was trying to buy. She just knew something was broken at her house and she was just trying to help fix it. I don't know... I don't know exactly how long it took. I know I was standing right about here, still receiving the offering, when this little six-year-old girl came down the aisle. It wasn't a penny bank the way you buy one, you know. It, it was a mason fruit jar, a mason fruit jar. And I found out later, sister, it had $12.45 in it. I didn't know how much was in it, but it looked to be about three-fourths full of pennies and dimes and nickels. And she came down the aisle, and she's holding that mason fruit jar up toward me and trying to give it to me. And I leaned over. Now, I told you that I love to receive offerings. And I'm a little over the top sometimes, and people sometimes get a little, you know, like, well, maybe he's a little too aggressive. But that night... I looked down, and I saw that little girl bringing that offering. I didn't want that money because I knew how bad her house was. I knew about her mother. I knew about what was going on. And I said to her, I leaned over to say, Honey, I thank you for your willingness to give, but I want you to know that we've got a lot of people here, which was less than 100, a lot of people here, and they're going to help me with these Bibles. And you, your heart's right. You take this money, and you give it to your mommy. I was, that's what I was trying to say, and I was about halfway through that, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me just as plain. It wasn't audible, but it was just as plain as I'm talking to you. And the Holy Spirit says, what are you doing? I said, I'm giving Lauren her money back. And the Holy Spirit said, she didn't give it to you. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been taken to the woodshed with, by the Holy Spirit or not. And those old-timers will remember what I'm talking about. You young people don't have a clue. But in a split second, I had been chastised, reprimanded, and totally corrected. <sighs> that little girl taught me three things that night. Three words. Number one, something. Everybody can do something. In just a few moments, pastors come in to receive faith promises you say, what's a faith promise? Is it like a pledge? Well, it's a little different. A pledge is a calculated amount that you've predetermined in your mind that you have the capacity and the capability to pay. When you buy a car or truck or pickup, that's what they do. They give you a pledge book. <laughs> you miss three, four pledges, they'll come get your pickup. <laughs> a faith promise is not exactly a pledge. It's what can God do through me in the next few months that he is causing me to feel that I could step above my tithe and I could step out in faith. I don't see how I could do it right now, but I know God's going to help me do it. Faith promise. 
So if you've never made a faith promise, something is a start. <laughs> Second word was stretch. What stretch mean? Stretch. <laughs> it means step out of your comfort zone into a faith zone and see what God will do. For her, that little mason fruit jar was all she had. To her to give it, that's a lot of stretch. If you've never given anything, $5 a week may be stretch. But if everybody does their part, you say, well, I don't know if that would make much of a difference. Can I just tell you without you getting upset with me or me being condescending and don't take me anywhere I'm not going? But if that little donkey can be used by God in the redemptive plan, you got a shot. <laughs> Surely your contribution can be taken by God and used for his glory. <laughs> the third word is seed. People have abused by manipulating people by saying, making promises from the Bible about seed and sowing and reaping. And I even heard a guy on TV one day, he was just going on. He says, if you'll send me $1,000, you'll be debt-free in 90 days. He can't say that. He's not God. If he really believed that, he could send me $1,000 and he'd be debt-free in 90 days and he wouldn't have to be on TV begging for money. <laughs> but just because there's a few knuckleheads out there abusing the truth doesn't change the fact that this book says God's not a debtor to any person. Genesis 8:22, he formed a seed time and harvest cycle. That when you sow seed, he can give you a harvest the way you need it. I don't know. I'm not God. I can't schedule it. You couldn't buy America with a million-dollar check. That's not what it's all about. But you can't make withdrawals from God's bank if you hadn't made any deposits. <laughs> I started home that night, and I called Eddie. I said, Eddie, tell Lauren I'm going to replenish her mason fruit jar we're going to turn her money in and i'm going to fill it back up he said you're too late it's already been done <laughs> harvest <laughs> harvest <laughs> i told ron barefield who works with us in development at bible alliance her story and he wrote a little appeal letter and told about lauren and her mason fruit jar and sixty thousand dollars came in to buy more bibles just because they were inspired by lauren <laughs> the next year Johanna and I were at a conference, and we took Eddie and Patsy and Lauren with us, and, and I was raising money for Fire Bibles again, and, and, and there was another group of leaders there, and I had her there, and we had that fruit jar, and it was full again, and I told this story, and they pledged another $2 million <laughs> for Bibles. Harvest. I probably shouldn't have done this one, okay? This is one that's kind of over the top, but I made her pour that fruit jar out. And stand at the door at that banquet. And she got another $2,100, $2,200 for Bibles. They fill that jar back up going out after that. Just pledged $2 million. Now think about that. <laughs> harvest. <laughs> the greatest harvest. Probably without doubt would be the souls that come to Christ. Because of one little six-year-old girl inspired 
millions of dollars. And when her mother stood in front of that judge, who had already said she deserves no mercy, her parole officer says she's the worst case I've ever dealt with, that judge looked at Laura Lee, Lauren's mother, and said, I don't know why I'm doing this, but if you'll go to a halfway house that I prescribe, send you to, you won't have to go to prison. She went there. It wasn't easy. Can I tell you, it's not easy. Crystal meth is a, an insidious, diabolical addiction. Only 3% of the people that are hooked ever get free. Within six months, Jesus Christ had touched her life and changed her. It took another almost 12 months to get her totally free. But within two years, the same judge that took her children away gave them back to her. Hallelujah. I don't think that Lauren had any idea that she was manipulative, that she was trying to get something for nothing. When she gave, she just sowed a seed without any understanding about the future. But when the Holy Spirit saw what was happening in her heart and life, she might have been thinking house, but he was thinking home. (laughs) And he restored to her what the devil had taken away. Friends, think about it. You get a chance today to put tools in the hands of missionaries around the world. They're going to impact this world for Jesus Christ. And you also get a chance today to sow a seed that I don't know how God's going to bring forth a harvest to you. It's a no-lose situation. Something. Everybody do something. Maybe you've never thought about giving out of your business. I said that one day in Texarkana, Texas. And the guy said to the pastor afterwards, he says, nobody's ever challenged me to give out of my business. I never thought of it. He said, I think I could do $10,000 a month for missions. The pastor came to me. He was so excited he couldn't hardly talk straight. (laughs) He told me that. I said, that's not stretch. That's impossible. (laughs) Well, stretch to him was impossible to me. Father, I pray that you touch people today. In a special way. Do what we could never do. But Lord, we have such a short period of time. And the need is so great. Thank you for this dear church. And for all of their investment. And their commitment to missions. And thank you for the pastors that lead this great church. And their passion for the lost. Whether it's the lost across the street. In our own homes or around the world. God, honor this moment in Jesus' name. Amen.